One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Friday, February 8th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're talking to Motherboard reporter Caroline Haskins about her breaking story on the dozens of cities who have secretly experimented with predictive policing software. Using public information requests, Motherboard obtained documents that verify previously unconfirmed police department contracts with the predictive policing company Predpol. This company claims to use an algorithm to predict crime in specific 500-foot by 500-foot sections of a city so that police can patrol or surveil specific areas more heavily. But this type of surveillance technology brings with it serious concerns about potentially perpetuating bias that's already widespread in policing and that it will disproportionately affect people of color. Motherboard reporter Caroline Haskins found that police departments all across the country are in contract negotiations with this company, so I sat down with her to learn more. So Caroline, this story is about a predictive policing software called Predpol. Can you tell us what that is and how it works? So Predpol is basically a software program that considers the history of crime in a particular area and considers factors like where it happened, when it happened. And using that software, it basically predicts that crime, similar types of crimes will happen in the same types of places in the future. So yeah, police departments basically use it to feed it their crime history and tell them where to send police officers if they're looking to police certain types of crimes. So it uses an algorithm. And what are the data sets that are being fed into this algorithm? So it's not considering individuals that commit a crime, but it considers where a crime happened. And then the software constructs these 500 by 500 foot. So very local. Only a couple of addresses are included in these circles. It constructs these squares that predict whether a similar type of crime will happen on a certain scale of days. So it could be anywhere between three and 28 days. But it considers, I mean, years of data. Anywhere from three to 10 years of data is going into this system to sort of predict that when crime will happen and what type of crime will happen. And it's so hyperlocal that it even predicts crimes based on specific houses. Can you talk more about that? Right. So if a crime occurred at a specific address, it'll construct this, you know, that 500 foot by 500 foot square around that address that'll limit it to that address and maybe a couple of other places surrounding it. It's not even on the scale of the block. It's on the scale of a couple of houses, a couple of buildings, and telling police that a crime is likely to occur in an extremely small space within a community. So there's a lot of issues that get brought up with this type of surveillance technology. And the first I want to talk about is how this specific predictive policing software has been compared to broken windows policing. And for those who don't know what that is, it's essentially the practice of focusing on minor crimes or activities like sleeping in a park or possessing small amounts of drugs. And 
At this point, it's generally understood to have contributed to over-policing and criminalization of people of color. So can you explain this comparison between PredPol and broken windows policing? Right. So for a period of time, like between the years of 2012 and 2014, official PredPol documents actually promoted broken windows as a part of its best practices. So it would say, you know, per this ideology, PredPol can be used to police crime in this way. And they took it out of their best practices in 2015. But fundamentally, the software can still be used in that same way because you can sort by different types of crime. So you can sort by something that's like an assault, a burglary, or different types of small menial types of crime. If an individual police officer is looking to police a particular type of crime, per that broken windows ideology, they can look to police petty crimes and try and see where that will happen. So it seems like PredPol almost could be used as like de facto broken windows in that like broken windows has been highly criticized and police departments have been pressured not to use it. But here we see almost sort of like a loophole. That's pretty much exactly it. And even if PredPol took it out of its company practices, the fact of the matter is that PredPol gives individual police departments and individual police officers a lot of agency over what kind of crimes that they want to police and where they will go, who they will look for, and what they want to prosecute. So this was a a breaking story in the sense that you made public information that was formerly pretty secret. What are the cities that you found are in negotiations with PredPol? Like how widespread is this software becoming? Basically, what I did was I, I filed public records requests and I got contract details, emails, PowerPoint presentations, and different data sets that were being used to power PredPol for a couple of police departments. Well, not a couple. I mean, several dozen. Um, I think that the final tally of the cities that were included was, and explicitly named in PredPol documents, was, uh, was 22. And then they said many more. So the ultimate scope of just how many, just how many police departments have used it and haven't disclosed it to the public isn't really known. But these documents pertain to cities over the course of a couple of years over a couple of states. And a couple of these contracts are still ongoing. I remember off the top of my head that the University of California, Berkeley is still ongoing. A handful of others are still ongoing. So despite all of the concerns that people have about PredPol, what is the company and the cities with contracts, what's their argument for why they want to use this software? So internal documents that have been distributed to different police departments give this certain line of reasoning that PredPol is purely about resource allocation. And it's about telling where police officers should go and how to best optimize their resources. And that's that's certainly one way of looking at it. But the reality is that it's sort of an amplifying force on all of the different dynamics that policing has within a neighborhood. And we know that 
there are issues with police officers over-policing communities of color um, and that people of color are at disproportionate risk of being subject to excessive force or being shot and killed by police. And so when you're taking a software that's amplifying these forces that are already at play, then you're sort of risking all of these different harmful factors also, you know, becoming more efficient. And one of the PredPol documents that I got talked about how by policing crime, you're helping everybody in the neighborhood. You're even helping the person who committed the crime because they are, you know, they've been caught. It's it's a very particular ideology and mindset that sort of informs the way that PredPol's gone about their activities. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about how algorithms are not objective. They're not neutral. They're based on the data sets that are fed to them. And those data sets are based on our our world. And, you know, our world is racist and sexist and all of the other things. And therefore, the algorithms are as well. And so bias is a really big problem that a lot of people are looking into. Can you talk more about sort of the the bias that we might see perpetuated by something like PredPol. Right. So exactly like you said, an algorithm or a system is only as good as the data that you're feeding it with. And the data that we're talking about here is crimes that were pursued by police and people that are in the criminal system. And, you know, this is sort of we're talking about on a countrywide level. We know that For instance, on like, let's say you're talking about drugs, people of color are more likely to be caught and prosecuted than white people for things like drug possession. So you're talking about like these big forces at play that make certain people and certain communities more likely to be policed. And so if we're talking about a system like PredPol that brings police to these neighborhoods that are already over-policed, you're basically amplifying that force. You know, you're you're reinforcing biases that have been in place for pretty much as long as policing has been in place in this country. And you spoke to a source for whom it was really important to emphasize that with over-policing also comes potentially deadly consequences. Can you talk about what he said? Right. So I spoke to Shahid Buttar, who's the director of grassroots advocacy for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And he talked to me about how it's a reality that when over-police communities come into contact with police, you're increasing the risk of, you know, life or death interactions, potentially the use of deadly force. And this happens all the time. And it's a problem that we're far from a resolution. So it's a problem that we are introducing these technologies that are aiding the state of policing as it is, but the state of policing as it is disproportionately puts people of color at risk. And we're, you know, we're just running the risk of these lethal interactions becoming more likely. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And the consequences of this type of technology are very serious. I'm curious, since this is a partnership with a private company, where is the data stored and what does that mean? For a period of time, PredPol was using Rackspace, which is a cloud computing company, to hold its data. And obviously, when you're bringing another private company into the mix, you're raising questions of how secure that data is and what measures they have in place to protect that. But 
perhaps more importantly, it raises questions of who really owns that data and who can share that data with whom. So it's it's really, you know, Rackspace did, didn't respond to my request for comment, but Predpol did say that they aren't using Rackspace anymore. But it's unclear if Predpol, the police municipalities involved, or one or both of them had ownership over the data that was in these servers that are stored just completely elsewhere. And that raises questions of, you know, let's say that this data was to be repurposed in a certain way who can make that call who can make that decision because we've seen we've seen in other cities that you know for instance aerial surveillance that's taken place in other cities that data in certain cases has been sold to insurance companies who want to know more about traffic patterns so there are certain incentives for private companies to give that data to other places for other means to, you know, to increase their revenue. But when you're bringing another private company into the mix, it just sort of emphasizes that risk. Yeah. And another big issue here seems to be a lack of transparency. I mean, that this is all kind of secret. In all of your research, I mean, is there any opportunity for public oversight here? Right. So that's definitely the thing. On an institutional level, on a countrywide level, we really don't have sufficient institutions for police oversight. And when you're talking about questions of police introducing new technology, that's a whole very specific level of oversight that we really don't have the institutions in place for yet. And there's a couple of individual cities, a couple in the state of California, that have been working with the Electronic Frontier Foundation to sort of institute these these committees that exercise some oversight over their police departments. But, you know, ultimately, on a large scale, we don't have that in place. And if these contracts aren't made public and there isn't a place for, you know, for public debate and for people to even just know what's happening in their communities, that's a big problem. Yeah. So lastly, I just want to ask you, what do you see in our future in terms of the privatization of policing as this seems to be kind of a part of that trend? Right. Yeah. So increasingly more, we're seeing these private companies introduce new technology to police departments and certain activities that are just a part of the everyday policing as we know it are getting outsourced to to companies that claim to have the, the incentive to make policing more efficient. Then you're getting into questions of our police companies becoming reliant on private companies and liable to those companies in order to perform, you know, basic law enforcement. There's also the fact that, you know, these are private employees that aren't subject to to public scrutiny and are accountable to the public who are holding and in some cases interpreting really sensitive data that has to do with how crime is dealt with in their communities, really complicated socioeconomic issues. And there's really a drive to get cities into these multi-year contracts. You know, Predpol is just one example. There's a lot of other companies. I mean, I guess off the top of my head, I mean, some of these have 
different varying levels of, you know, what kind of activities that they do. But companies like ShotSpotter, which has a predictive policing software called HunchLab. You have persistent surveillance systems, which is an aerial surveillance system. You have just a lot of different companies that are offering their services sometimes at a discounted rate or for free, getting police departments locked into their services. And then increasingly, you know, policing gets outsourced and privatized. Well, thank you so much, Caroline. Uh, Yeah, thank you. You can read the full story at motherboard.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.